0: This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. So here at Bold Dominion, we publish a new episode once every two weeks. Because we know that politics doesn't stop. No matter what time of year, people still have to come together to make decisions about how we want our society to function. We have 70-something episodes under our belt, and still so much more to talk about. Keeping up is kind of a year-round job. But for Virginia legislators, it's not actually year-round, not really. In odd-numbered years, lawmakers are in Richmond for 60 days. In even years, just a month. Now, that's often extended by a few more weeks, but still, in most years, Virginia legislators start in mid-January, and they're packed up and ready to head home by March. Why so short?
1: We like this idea of a reluctant politician, someone who whose real interests are elsewhere, and will just kind of step in and do their duty, and then they go home.
0: That's Rich Marr. He's a professor of political science at Randolph-Macon College, and we'll be talking with him in a moment. The idea of a citizen legislature was popular with America's founders. It's the idea that our lawmakers should not be career politicians, out of touch with the people. For most of the year, they're living in their communities, engaged and connected to the things that matter to their constituents. That all sounds rosy, but in practice, it's more complicated. And think about our modern society. Who has the time and means to take off a couple months of work to go legislate in Richmond? It's much easier if you're wealthy or retired. So guess who mostly gets elected? Part-time legislatures also increase the influence of lobbyists and special interest groups. Since lawmakers have to get back to their lives, there's a power void, and lobbyists are happy to fill it. We're diving into all of this today. To help us out, we're talking with Richmond Times-Dispatch reporter Charlotte Renee Woods. And we'll also speak with State Delegate Kelly Fowler, who represents the Virginia Beach area in District 21. But first, we sit down with Professor Richard Marr. He explains what hybrid legislating looks like in Virginia and the reasoning behind it.
1: it's considered a hybrid legislature but it really is much more of a part-time legislature in that they do have professional staff but it's not enough they do have ability to hire people and get people to do some work there's there's committees a true part-time legislature a true sort of citizen legislature model might have very few staff members it might have no salary at all for the legislators it might have a very brief period. Um, and that's contrasted to a professional legislature, a full-time, like our national legislature, Congress, right? Congress, you that's your job. You don't have a job on the side. So in Virginia, you have part-time legislators. They get paid a little bit of money, but not enough to make it a full-time gig for the whole year. And they do have the ability to hire one or two staff members who work directly for them to do their work um, of legislating and other things like that.
2: Mm, yeah i'm curious like for example like this past year the general assembly ended this general session without having like passed the budget yet so they had to call a special session for that and that isn't necessarily like out of the ordinary could you like explain the role of special sessions so a special session
1: isn't all that unusual I, i mean i think it's been decades that there's been this custom of calling a special session over the summer or in the fall when there's a little bit of work to be done In some years, though, and and in more recent years, that's been a lot of work. So when the Democrats first kind of took control back of the General Assembly in in recent years, they had a big backlog of legislation that they wanted to pass. So I think there was a a push for that there during the pandemic. Of course, there was a lot of emergency legislation passed that required a long session over the summer during the pandemic, but it's not that unusual to have a special session to finish up some work. And in fact, it's built into the constitution. So there's a way for the governor to call folks back into session. There's a way that the General Assembly can kind of disappear for a little bit, but have to come back and still be in session. So it really isn't that unusual. And it's almost like when the constitution was drawn up, this most recent one in 1971, there was a kind of worry or recognition in the back of folks minds that 2 months isn't enough necessarily to do all the work that's required of the legislature so i think there's something about the built-in fail-safe of a special session that maybe there's a thought that there's more work on the other hand it is a special session right there's special rules it's not a, just an extension of the regular session so there is this sense that it's supposed to be rare it's supposed to be a, an odd thing you know break glass in case of emergency it just more and more, it seems like it's required in order for the assembly to get its work done for the year.
2: I'm curious, how does Virginia's part-time legislature like compare to the way the rest of the country looks like? Is this strange? Is this unusual, usual?
1: Yeah, Virginia, as in many other things, is kind of right down the middle, I'd say. There are definitely professional legislatures in some states, and, and they're not the surprising ones, right, as California New York, where... There is, first of all, a large population, second of all, a tradition of activist government, and third of all, in California, this kind of scope and scale that California governments have taken on themselves, right, as a kind of leading policymaker in the nation, it's not surprising that they would have fairly well-paid, full-time legislators with large staffs. Then on the opposite end, you have, you know, places like Maine you know, or New Hampshire, where they're barely paid at all. There might be a per diem. Folks will just kind of wander in and make a law and then go back to whatever they're doing. So I think Virginia certainly represents a kind of middle ground with this idea of part-time legislators, but they have a little bit of salary. They have certainly have a, a staff or two. And the trend has been in recent decades towards more professionalization. I think that's true here in Virginia, and that's true across the country. I think more and more states are finding that part-time sessions, particularly every other year, which some states have, for the first month of the year, which other states have, it, it it's not enough, right, to match the scope and the scale of problems that face governments these days. The, the term I use in my classes is increased capacity.
2: Mm, yeah, and I definitely wanted to touch more on the idea of, like, increased capacity in a little bit. I'm also, like, just for Real quick before we move on to like the justifications for this. For people who don't know, could you just say what the salaries for legislatures in Virginia do you know off the top of your head? If
1: not I don't I mean not the exact number, but it's roughly twenty thousand dollars a year. So it's a nice little stipend for a part-time gig. Unfortunately, you know, being a legislator is not really that part-time of a gig these days. I mean, it really is a year-long full-time job. Because don't forget that while you might consider that not a bad salary for two months worth of work. The legislators still have to represent their district. They still need to collect all the information. They still need to go back to their districts and communicate with people. They still have to represent, and so it's it's not a lot of money, and it doesn't necessarily translate into a really high hourly wage. I would say.
2: Could you explain the idea of like a citizen legislature? Um, the idea behind yeah.
1: that. Yeah. So the the idea of a citizen legislature goes back to not just the founding of of America, but back to a kind of tradition of Roman civic republicanism, politicking, it's not a job, right? You're not supposed to have this as a profession. Instead, it's a duty and obligation for residents of a community to contribute to the rulemaking in the community. So you want reluctant legislators who have real lives elsewhere. That's the model of the citizen legislature. And it makes sense because you want people who are plugged into the real experiences of of real life, right? You you wouldn't have examples of, let's say, a a Senate candidate wandering into a grocery store as uh, Dr. Oz recently did in the Pennsylvania race and didn't seem like he knew all that much about grocery stores or food, really, right? And and that wouldn't happen, the argument goes, if if you have citizen legislators, like people who are teachers and, and doctors and lawyers. The example I often give is Skylar Van Valkenburg, who's a delegate in the House of of Delegates here in Virginia. It comes out of Henrico County, just outside of Richmond. He is a high school teacher. I have been to his school to do a a judging contest, and he's there with his students, right? He's definitely embedded in the community as a, a kind of normal part of the community as a kind of normal job. And so that model, that suggestion that Van Valkenburg might be a little more in touch with what's going on in his community than you know, some rich lawyer who becomes a US senator, that's the model. Now, there is a darker side to it, let's say a, a kind of less participatory side because there's also an elitism kind of baked into that model because who has time to be citizen legislators but usually elites, right, wealthy folks, landowners. You know, Jefferson kind of famously had this idea of a government of gentlemen farmers, right, agrarian landowners who had a stake in things, but also were refined and educated and 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 were were propertyed. And so there is this sense that yes, it's people who have their hand in the real life, but there's not that many Van Valkenbergs, like most. Legislators in the General Assembly are rich lawyers or, or retired folk or business owners, the, the kind of folks who can take time out for a couple of months and go work full time in the General Assembly. So there is some kind of aspect of this model that, yes, it's people who have their hand in real life, but if it's not a really supported by the model, there might be folks who aren't representative of the whole community.
2: Mm, yeah I've know I've heard other criticisms similar along that lines are like it kind of increases the reliance or influence of lobbyists, for example. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit.
1: This is sometimes the argument against term limits as well, right? We like this idea of a reluctant politician, someone who whose real interests are elsewhere and who will just kind of step in and do their duty and then they go home. But that means that the expertise that you need, the professionalism that's more and more required to solve complicated public policy problems, belongs in unelected people, right? And so that could be staffers or bureaucrats. And maybe that's fine. You know, these are folks who probably have a commitment to public service, right? That's why they work in government and work for government. But it also means lobbyists, right? And interest groups. And uh, lobbyists have a dramatic effect on legislation in the General Assembly, particularly in those first few weeks of session when everyone talks about the fire hose, right? It's the trial by fire and just bill after bill after bill. But what's underlying that excitement and fire hose is a bunch of expertise to develop those bills that comes not from legislators, not from districts, but from professionals who are there all the time because they are paid to be there all the time by companies, by wealthy interests they might be contract lobbyists they might be other lobbies and you know it's not like they necessarily have to have a sinister intent they could be and in fact are a helpful resource for legislators but they're not elected right they're not representing the interests of the people in general they have very specific interests that they represent so i think there is something to the idea of a kind of professional class that underlies the part-time legislature Somebody has to do the work of writing the bill and figuring out how that gets translated into regulations. And yes, we have staffers to do it. And there's a group of wonderful lawyers who draft legislation for the General Assembly, but they're also helped along and influenced by a bunch of professionals who are not subject to election.
2: Yeah. And this also ties into your thoughts on state capacity. So I was would love if you could dive further into that like how has the workload changed and why has the workload changed as this trend towards professionalization
1: has occurred Yeah I mean it's a growing trend across all levels of government government is just doing more and government is doing more in response to requests from people from demands from citizens for government action, because the scale and the scope of the problems that we face, that we've recognized are much bigger than they used to be. It doesn't mean that the material conditions are necessarily changed, right? It's not like poverty is a new thing. But we as a society have decided that we have enough affluence, we have enough wealth that maybe we could do something about poverty. So we have programs. And where do those programs come from? Who has the resources to do that? Government right? And so we have demands, increasing demands on government, but it's not just poverty, right? Poverty certainly has grown in terms of government scope of addressing it over the last 100 years, but there are dramatic new problems that have been recognized like climate change. And climate change is not just a national problem. It is a state problem. It is a a cross-state problem. It is a local problem. I mean, we have legislation every year trying to address the, the issue. And Politicians who might be citizen legislators have to understand at least the broad scope of climate change and and what to do about it. So, there's all these sort of new issues with technical aspects to them. There's also the rise in interest in cultural issues um, of abortion and discrimination, um, the questions about gender, right, that require a whole host of new understanding. We have tons of information and data about this. It's not like it's just values entirely. There's lots of data about these issues too. And mastering that data takes time. So having legislators who are part-time and then having them have maybe one or two staff people who have to be experts in everything means that it's very difficult for them to build up the knowledge base that they might need to be familiar with what they're actually voting on.
2: For you, what do you see as what would you like to see as a possible solution to this? Like, what would you like this to look like? Is the answer full-time legislature? Is it something in between? What What do you think?
1: I mean, I think the obvious answer and one that is coming to be forced upon state legislatures is full-time. It's full-time professional legislatures with full-time staff and staff that has a scope enough that they can gather some expertise on issues. Now, what that actually requires in a lot of states is, Changes in culture, and I think more importantly, changes to the Constitution. And there's a high barrier to making those changes. And I think there'll be a a reluctance among legislators to make sweeping changes like that anytime soon. What I do think we will see over the next decade or two are increasingly longer and more frequent special sessions, right? There is this safety valve built into the Constitution currently where. The session, you know, the General Assembly can be called back into work. And I think that is going to become more the norm, maybe not every year, but certainly I could envision a world by, you know, 10, 15 years from now, the actual calendar for the General Assembly is not two months at the beginning of the year. It might be five months over the year spread out where you have a regular special session that we all call a special session, but it happens every year. And certain things get pushed to that session. I could see us definitely moving towards a quasi full-time legislature with maybe some increased funding for staff. Maybe that could go along with campaign finance reform because a lot of staff are funded by campaign slush funds belonging to the legislators. So a little more rational approach to funding legislatures and the staff that they have might come along with that. So I I would expect to see some baby steps towards a full-time legislature, even if we don't get there for another 20, 30 years.
2: One thing that strikes me when I hear that, and I don't know if this is completely accurate or if you have answers to this, is like, as it becomes this more quasi thing, like you mentioned five months, does that almost make it more difficult for people who aren't doctors and lawyers, et cetera, and have that be able to take all that time off of their other jobs to work on this? Does it make it more difficult for them to legislate, do you think?
1: I, I absolutely think that an, an increase in a kind of professional legislature without the actual rules and supports for it will make it even harder for regular folk to participate. So the teacher, the college professor, the small business owner, even the corporate lawyer like Senator Jen McLellan might find it harder and harder to maintain a full-time job and a job in the legislature if it's now not two months concentrated at the beginning of the year, but now it's five months. You know, it's two and at the beginning, it's two over the summer, it's one in the fall, it's it's all these back and forth to Richmond, which, you know, for folks who live near Richmond is not that hard, but it's a large state coming out from the, the Tennessee border is not always that easy for folks to kind of jet in and jet back out again. So I, I do think that without the kinds of support structures like increased salary, like increased staff, like remote voting, like actual per diems that cover every travel expense that legislators have, without those kinds of supports, then yes, it will increase the pressure on regular citizens and make the idea of a citizen legislature even more abstract and less fully realized.
0: Richard Marr is a professor of political science at Randolph-Macon College. Stay with us for a short break. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. If you've ever had a question about state politics, let us know. Maybe we'll do a show about it. You can shoot us an email at virginia.edu. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe. Hey, and leave us a nice review while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to higher education to music. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Welcome back. In this part of the show, we talk with Kelly Fowler. She's a state delegate representing House District 21 in the Virginia Beach area. And she tells us how Virginia's hybrid legislature system affects her as a representative.
2: You had brought up a bill that would study part-time legislature across the US or the effects of lengths of legislatures across the US. Could you tell me more about what that bill was and what brought you to want to look into that?
3: Well, I mean, I watched the two thousand we call ourselves the freshmen still because, you know, there was a big crew of us that came in and we're pretty bonded. And I look at us and we we were just a different crew. We came in and we had different we were regular people, right? It was just such a different new group. And I watched it and the toll it took on everybody differently. OK, so there are some people who their husband worked or their wives worked or they're older and they're retired or they're young and they don't have a family. Right. And when you think of the amount of Virginia families there are and we always talk about, you know, Virginia families, we need people representing Virginia families that are Virginia families. When I'm thinking of all of us coming in, I knew how hard it was on me. I know how hard it was on different people and for different reasons. And I'm like, there's got to be a better way. And I know other legislatures do it differently. And I got in a, uh, a magazine and for the National State Legislators Conference, and it was talking about each state and how long their sessions were and all that. And so it was really interesting to me. And I was like, we need to know more. Nobody's going to want to change this without knowing more. And so I just thought the study would be the best approach. And it would seem like a no-brainer. I mean, it's not partisan at all. It's just we need to evaluate how we do things. I mean, obviously, it's not meant for regular people. If you are a single parent that had to work, you're not going to be able to come up here and do this. So I think that if you only are making it for people with privilege, I think we need to figure out how we can get regular people in office. And I knew that I needed to be through a study and get some good answers. So
2: Mm, yeah. And so you created that bill to do the study and then it just didn't. Didn't
3: uh left in rules. So never got a hearing. Um yeah, it's been it's been disheartening, but I'm not going anywhere because this is not the way it's supposed to be.
2: I just want to kind of get the gist of like your schedule personally. Like when the session begins in early January, it's like the guns are off, there's a bunch of work you have to get through, it's often less than two months. Like, what does that look like? What's your strategy? How does that feel for you? What's your strategy in dealing with
3: that? Um, so when January comes, what has happened is Everybody who can take off work, who can take time off, ends up being able to go. This was set up back when the tobacco farmers, this was their slow time of year. And this is when they went to session. But it doesn't work anymore. It's in the school year for any parents who have children. I hate it because it's my daughter's birthday. And, you know, it's like it takes up your life. You have to take every second because there's so many bills. And that's another thing is that the session is too short. I mean, that's like there's so much going on and it goes back and forth. So, I mean, to me, that's another important thing is thinking about, like, how session is run, not just for the legislators, but to be effective.
2: What do you consider to be, like, the biggest barrier to being a legislator as, like, just a regular person with holding down your job, family, kids, etc.?
3: Well, for me, it's my kids. If I had a way that they could be there and go to school there, and it could be, like, temporary residency but I've checked into it with the school systems and they would want you to withdraw completely. And that means that I wouldn't be living in the district if I had to register in Richmond. Right. So there's just, there's just no good way around it. I have a two and a half year old. I'm not, that's my pandemic baby. I mean, how do you just leave your baby, you know, like just for nights? I mean, so I have, that is the biggest challenge I have. If there was a way that you could have a residency kind of up there, it'd be not a problem at all. I wouldn't have any problem with that part. So it's, it's definitely when I say that sacrifice, it's that also that monetary, which is like, I'm a realtor, like i work part time, I'm an agent, so I can do that. Well, I lo- you lose clients when you're not there. I can't take a new client in December who wants to buy a house and I can't even be there for it. You know, okay, we got to tighten the belt. That's fine. We have that privilege um, based on where my husband and I are in our lives. And so you use that privilege for good, right? To be able to speak and to be able to do things, good things for other people, but you do get to a breaking point. You did touch
2: a bit On alternatives for this to look like, like, would you be leaning towards full time legislation? Would that make it more difficult? Would you be leaning towards higher salaries? Is that the answer? Like, what? um, I'm not
3: sure if extension is the answer or if a different method. I mean, I don't know. That's why I wanted to do the study. In my head, I kept thinking it would make sense to do two sessions a year, where you it's a crossover, so you can go back and talk to your constituents about the things that did survive the first round, and it kind of gives you a hybrid kind of okay we're using our judgment based on our districts trying to get that information but it's not just from lobbyists it's from the citizens if we have time we can kind of get the citizens involved and to me that would make sense but i'm sure there's pros and cons to every different way i mean this is in our constitution so it's not something that would change easily but i would think that a study would be the first step
0: kelly fowler represents district 21 in virginia's house of delegates Next up, we turn to Charlotte Renee Woods, who's a reporter with the Richmond Times-Dispatch. She has written about the consequences of hybrid legislating, and today she talks with us about what possibilities for change could look like.
4: I wrote about this about almost two years ago, just personal interests. I went down a rabbit hole of research, learned so much, just thought it was a fascinating topic. And actually, state legislator uh, Sally Hudson, who's a delegate representing the Charlottesville area, she pointed me to the fact that like there's a joint investigation between USA Today and Arizona Republic called Copy-Paste Legislate that looked at how model policies were largely written by, you know, special interest groups, you know, obviously proselytized by lobbyists and activists around the country. And then a lot of legislators were just sort of like using these as either, if not verbatim, just plug and chug a few different words, swapping them in and out. But these model policies were just making their way and getting passed around state legislators and the investigation noted that like Virginia was was not some exception in that. And so for delegate Sally Hudson that had her concerned in that, you know like maybe if we had a full-time legislator we would be more hands-on as delegates and senators To have more control of our own writing of our legislation, more time, you know, outreach with constituents,
2: and it would be less likely to be, you know, these model policies making their way through. One thing that I found that was interesting that was mentioned in your article is they talked about the strain that this puts on localities. So I was curious if you could... Dive a little further into that. It always comes back to the Dillon rule. Uh, So, Virginia is a Dillon rule state, which means a lot of times local
4: governments have to say, Mother May I, to General Assembly. You know, there's a lot of times you could probably argue that's a good thing, but then there's a lot of instances where you've got locality after locality, like this past year with the um, school construction, you know, multiple bills were submitted, multiple localities wanted the ability to levy taxes towards school construction. It obviously didn't end up (laughs) going the way that people wanted. And so, yeah, when you have a part time legislature, you sometimes localities will have to wait this is their finite window of opportunity to tell their state legislator hey can you carry this bill on behalf of this region or this district to the state and you know sometimes someone in southwest virginia or nova isn't going to really understand what central virginia needs and vice
2: versa so i'm imagining that it's pretty unlikely for virginia to like i don't know hear this podcast and be like immediately decide we're going to change to a full time session but there are also like alternatives, more hybrid ways that this could look along the way. In your article, both Sally Hudson and Craig Deeds had mentioned some of those alternatives. I was wondering if you could give a kind of overview of those.
4: Yeah, so like Senator Deeds mentioned, um, if not switching completely to a full-time state legislature, at least increasing, working on increasing the length of time that each session is because There's a lot to get through every session. In 60 days, theoretically, you'd have more time to be more thoughtful and careful. Not to say that legislators aren't thoughtful and careful with the work that they do, but to really get through everything. And that way, the bills that do need more debate um, in subcommittee, committee or full floor vote, will be getting the time that's needed. I feel like it would also give us regular constituents more time
2: to show up and speak if we wanted to. I remember Sally Hudson had also said something like, it could be something spread out. So it's like, a one week a month, it gives that time for maybe hearing criticism, having more debate about these issues, which was pretty interesting as well. And I think about, um, I know it's, it sounds like a silly analogy, but when you
4: think about year round K-12 education, you know, it doesn't mean you're getting all summer off and then you're on, you know, all rest of the year. It just means you're, you're having spurts where you're on, little spurts when you're off, spurts when you're on, spurts when you're off. And that cycle could continue all year in the, instead of the way that it is now, which is you know, you're you're in your district all year and then for thirty to sixty days, you're hunkered down in Richmond legislating during that little window
2: of time. One of like my final questions is in this the the process of if Virginia decides to implement this and then go down that path, what are some challenges like the main challenges that we might face in changing this? Would you I think your article mentioned staffing or funding? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned funding
4: in particular because I think the average that was noted in the National Conference of State Legislatures is that like if you're a full-time state representative or senator, then you're getting about 40 to 80,000 depending on the state for your yearly salary whereas if you're a part-time in Virginia you're getting 18,000. You know, obviously if you're shifting to full-time salaries will go up. But certain things I'm not sure what the funding is but might be a wash because every time there's a special session And legislators have to come back like they did uh, in September this year. Like, oh my God, 2020, there was, remember the special session that lasted like 12 weeks? (laughs) Well, every time their legislators have to come back for these special sessions, you know, finishing up the budgets, any special session that the governor calls, that's More, you know, that per diem that gets racked up because then you're reimbursing the mileage as, you know, someone from Southwest Virginia or Northern Virginia is making their way to Richmond. You're also putting them up in hotels if they have to be there for a while and they can't just, you know, like Jennifer McClellan, Lamont, Bagney, they can just go home that day. (laughs) But someone, you know, like Terry Kilgore is going to have to go all the way out to Wise. Those costs rack up. So yeah, like if you're, you're making that switch and then it'll also impact you know, the staffing in the divisional legislative services, will we need more people doing certain things? Will we need less people doing certain things? If Virginia were to switch to a full-time legislature, it would require a change to the state's constitution, which we saw with the redistricting commission to outline that process. It has to pass the house two years in a row with an election in between, then become a ballot referendum for all us voters. So it would really be a big team effort if we made that switch you know, a, the difference between having a full-time or a part-time state legislative body or general assembly, it is not a cure-all or a fix-all for anything. It is not the root of every problem. It's not the solution to every problem, but it is worth analyzing and sort of checking in on, well, what if we did things differently, or should we keep it the same? Because I think there's, at least from my own perspective in reporting, I could see the different arguments for why you would want it each way. So I definitely think that it's something of interest, and I definitely love going after these like niche, nerdy, how things work behind the scenes kinds of things to explore. And then if Virginia did wanna pursue changing it, there is wiggle room, there are options, even without completely transitioning to a, a full-time legislature.
0: Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Thanks to her and also to Delegate Kelly Fowler and Professor Richard Marr for joining us today. My name is Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our show this week was produced and edited by the terrific Alana Bittner. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.